We're finishing up uh, Genesis 27 and sort of easing into Genesis 28. If you can turn there this morning. It's always hard to know where to break up that particular story and uh, make it a manageable sort of thing. And uh, hopefully this week will be more manageable than last week was. That was a lot of text, and that was a lot of sermon. So, uh, picking up in verse 41 of chapter 27. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft, be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like, they, like these, one of these women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings so that God, uh, that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Meelath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit, that uh, here we might find ourselves recognizing our own brokenness, our own inability. Send your spirit that we might see Jesus here, sufficient to save and to sanctify. And so accomplish your merciful and saving purposes among us this morning. In the name of the Son you sent to save sinners like us, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Sometimes we don't know what we're doing when we do it. You see, I thought that when I loaded up my car one night in August of 1991, I thought I was moving to Arizona, not to Arizona, Florida. 
moving to Florida to go to seminary. And my intention at that point in time was to get my Master of Divinity degree and to return to the Northeast. That was my plan. What I didn't realize is that, of course, God had a different plan. And that the reasons I left were far more profound than the fact that I was going to go to seminary. That God is at work in our circumstances to accomplish far more than we think is being accomplished in our circumstances. And sometimes what is being accomplished is far different than we ever imagined would be taking place. That is what's going to happen in the life of Jacob. And we're starting to look at this today. He's leaving home. He thinks for one reason, but there's far more going on than Jacob really understands. Thankfully, we have Moses to let us know all that's kind of going on in his life, and we'll be able to benefit from that. The big idea this morning is that God is still at work in, not despite, but in the consequences of our sin. This is the last part of that story whereby everyone was guilty. Isaac was guilty because he was going to give the blessing to Esau instead of to Jacob. And he was going to do it privately instead of publicly. Esau was guilty because he had ignored his oath to his brother and had listened to his father and was going to take the blessing that really wasn't his anymore. Both by the word of God and by his selling of his birthright for a bunch of stew. And Rebecca. It was disobedient. I mean, she, she was trying to fulfill God's promise in her own way and through manipulating and deceiving her husband, taking advantage of his blindness instead of confronting him about his disobedience. And then, of course, Jacob himself, who enters the tent of his father with food, disguised as his brother, to take the blessing that should have been his by God's providence. And yet, Everybody's guilty. And so here we're starting to see more of how the misery that is produced by sin continues to splinter this family and to blow it to pieces. And there's going to be God's solution and there's going to be their solution. And it is our solutions that often harden us in our sin as we can see taking place in the lives of Esau, even Rebekah. They're still picking up the pieces. Those who created this problem are now trying to fix it. It sort of sounds like the government at times, doesn't it? You know, they create problems sometimes, and then they think they're the ones who can fix the problem. We do that too. We just on a much smaller scale. Okay, I didn't create the housing crisis, but I create my own problems. And sometimes I think that I can fix my own problems, and when I do that, I'm a fool. And they are fools right here. They're trying to fix the problems they created. And here you have the situation where it's a middle-aged Esau. He is somewhere probably between 40 and 60 years age. Because, you know, he did not get married until he was 40. And so he's had these wives for a while. He's middle-aged and he's pretty clueless about life. He's a slave to his own passions. And we see that appearing right here. Because what is he doing? He's mad at his brother who has tricked him yet again. He hates his brother, it says. Isn't it interesting that 
I, know, I love the providence of God because, you know, the, the, the Heidelberg Catechism is done by the week, you know. I don't set up what reading we're going to do. I'm just the next Lord day, the next Lord day. Last week, Jacob dishonored his father, and what were we talking about? The fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother. This week, we're talk- it's about murder. Thou shalt not murder. And what is Esau going to do? He's going to kill his brother. In his mind, he's consoling himself with the thought that my dad is going to be dead soon. And when he is dead, my brother is going to be dead too because I'm going to kill him. That's how he consoles himself with plotting revenge, violence against his brother. He shows himself to be actually of the line of Cain, to be the seed of Satan in this, because he's just like Cain, plotting the demise of his brother. His true character is revealed, and this is no solution. Playing mafia with your brother, not a solution to a problem. Restoration is the solution, but he's planning death. In contrast to him, I think of Jesus. Romans chapter 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. See, that's the solution. Reconciliation. A reconciliation that Jesus accomplished in his death upon the cross. And so I'm thankful that Jesus is not like Esau. He does not console himself with the thought of, I'm going to get them one day. But he says, I am coming for them to redeem them, to make them my friends, my brothers, my bride. How much greater Jesus is than Esau. That's only part of Esau's problem. The other part of Esau's problem is that he discovers in the course of all of this that his wives displease not just Rebekah, but also his father Isaac. The, the, the tone of the text seems to indicate he doesn't really care what Rebecca thinks about his wives. Remember, he's Isaac's favorite. Jacob is her favorite. He cares about what his father thinks, and he realizes that in his choice of, of these two women, two, he has offended his father. And he seeks to make this right. And again, his solution just seems to make a greater mess of the problem. What's his his solution? How is he going to get back in Isaac's good graces? I'll go get me another wife. A good one this time. Not one of the Canaanite women. Because they're idol worshippers. I don't have enough wives. (laughs) That's his solution. I'll get me a better one. Okay? Does that really sound like wisdom to you? This is more foolishness on the part of Esau. He, he, he's just a man of his passions. He doesn't stop. He doesn't think. And so he takes a journey just like Jacob is going to take a journey. But his, he is not, was not ordered by his father. This one he takes voluntarily, but it's far shorter than his brother's journey. And he comes back with a wife from the house of Ishmael. He goes to the wrong cousins. Do any of you have the wrong cousins in your family? You know, there's, there's the cousins that your family likes, you know, the good, they're, they're nice people and everything like that. Jacob is being sent to what we, what he thinks are. <laughs> Turns out they're not the nice cousins after all. Laban is a, 
is a dastardly man, but he's going to the good cousins because they believe in God. Esau goes to the bad cousins, the disreputable cousins, because, I mean, think about this for a moment. What did Ishmael, how did Ishmael treat Isaac? He mocked him. How is this, marrying the daughter of Esau, uh, Ishmael, going to get you in Isaac's good graces? This is like the new math. You know, two plus two is six. Doesn't work. Okay? He goes to the idolaters to find a spouse. It's just different idolaters. It's not the Hittites, but still it's the same problem. Not much of an improvement. And so he took as his wife a daughter of Ishmael. But it's not just Esau that's hardened in his sin. We see that even believing Rebekah is hardened in her sin. So we need to take note of that, that we too can be hardened in sin at times. Hebrews talks about that, about bitterness hardening our hearts. Okay, we can do this. Her solution to the, the, she hears, we don't know how, maybe because it said that he was consoling himself, maybe he let it slip to one of the servants that he was, you know, I'm going to get my brother. Okay, maybe he let it slip, but somehow word gets back to Rebecca that Esau is going to kill Jacob, and she can't stand it. And so she comes to the son she loves, her favorite son, and says, once again, obey my voice. Listen to me. Do what I say. She resorts to some of the same old tricks that got Jacob in this problem in the first place. This is the reason why Jacob has to run for his life. Obey my voice. She again demands his obedience. She goes to her husband and she tells him the truth but only part of the truth. She needs him to get away, to go to her brother Laban, to get a wife there. That's true. But what she doesn't tell him is about what Esau plans to do. And we're not exactly sure why she doesn't tell him. It could be that you know some of, some like Calvin have said that this they were, she was afraid that this would incite Esau to act more rapidly. Forget about waiting until Dad's dead. I'm going to hunt him down and kill him now. We don't know exactly why she decided to take this course of action, but she was less than completely truthful. Okay, but she lays out this promise that that I will send word to you when his anger is dissipated, when his fury is gone. So that's the plan. You go to my brother Laban, I'll take care of it with your dad, and uh, when when everything cools down around here, I'm going to send for you. And that message never came. Now, surely Esau was not angry for 20 years. <laughs> but the word never came. She broke her promise didn't work out the way that that, uh, Jacob expected. He didn't think he'd be all that long in Padam Aram. Sort of like I didn't expect to spend 20 years in Florida. I thought it was three and done. And I got stuck in Florida. Not my plan, but God's plan. 
to be in the place I didn't expect, to become a person I didn't expect. That's what, he's, that's what God is doing. God is keeping Jacob in a different place to make him a different man. We'll get to that in a little bit. But our own wisdom produces solutions that sort of multiply our problems. And how do we get back to what is right, what is good, what God is trying to do? And we recognize that God works to change us through self-inflicted suffering. See, remember, what is God changing? Us. What do we want God to change? Our circumstances. Isn't that what we usually pray for? God, change this stuff. Take away this pain or whatever it is. But really what God's wanting to do is change us in the midst of those circumstances. Sometimes he brings those things into our lives in order to change us, to transform us, to remake us. But he first deconstructs us. It seems to be clear to everyone in the family that Jacob needs to leave the family home. But for different reasons, of course. Flee, Rebecca says. She wants him to flee from Esau's murderous threats. She's not as concerned that he gets a wife, that he stays alive. Okay, See what her sin has brought? All her plans cost her the one that she loved. She never saw her son ever again as far as we can tell. So she says flee. But you know what? He doesn't just need to flee Esau. He needs to flee Rebekah. He has grown up in a utterly dysfunctional, weirded-out family. And she has a control over him. He obeys her voice instead of obeying the voice of God. He needs to get as far away from his mother as he possibly can. The only way he will learn to listen and obey the voice of God is if he is far away from Rebecca. And so God sends him far away. He's not just fleeing a murderous brother, he's fleeing a controlling mother. You know, I didn't realize when I was going, I thought, I'm going to seminary, you know, I'm going to learn stuff. I had to be away from my family and the weird way they do things. If you want to know more, ask Amy. When she, next time you see her, okay? My family is weird. They, they do things like all kind of strange and stuff. And in order for me to begin to fulfill the call that God had placed upon my life, he had to physically remove me geographically a thousand miles away so that he could begin to deconstruct me and remake me in his image instead of theirs. I didn't understand that when it started. I thought I was just going to school for three years. Study some theology. Learn Greek and Hebrew. But God is so much, there's so much more that He has in mind, even in the midst of the consequences of our sin and our messed upness, our brokenness. And so He has to flee from His mother. Isaac says, Arise and go. He, he sends Jacob off. Oh, He sends him away to get a wife, one who is not a Canaanite. 
And it's tempting for us to think that this is about race. And it has absolutely nothing to do about race. It has everything to do with worship. Deuteronomy 7. Okay. The, the events in Jacob's life are foreshadowing what God is going to tell the Israelites in the wilderness. This is for the generation that's, that's, that's going to enter the promised land. Okay. They're, they're hearing the law again before Moses dies. They're about to enter the land. He tells them, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Is it, is it because they're those Canaanite people? No. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. In 1 Corinthians 7, which we heard uh, the, the very end of that, that was Paul's point. If you're going to marry, they must be in the Lord, precisely so that you're both worshiping the same God and moving in the same direction. Because when you are unequally yoked in that particular way, you make a mess of things. And as a pastor, I've seen it time and again. God knows what he's talking about. Really, he does. He does. And so, go and get a wife that believes in the Lord, is what he says. Now, we'll find out later that Laban was a bit of a syncretist, meaning he had other gods besides the Lord, but he actually did worship the Lord too. Okay? Unlike the Canaanite women who worship Baal and any other number of gods. Okay? But listen, think about this for a moment. He's 40 to 60 years old. Okay? He's, he's, He's unmarried, and he hasn't got a clue about how to get a wife. Who hasn't done a good job parenting here? Okay. <laughs> Isaac and Rebecca. Part of a calling for a parent is to prepare your children for marriage. To make them a marriageable person as best as it is within your capability. Because obviously... I'm limited in what I can do in my children, you know. I can't, like, reach inside and flick switches. Okay. But instructing them, building character, uh, things like that. If you're a single person, part of your task right now is to become a marriageable person if you have the desire to be married. And some of you may not. And that's okay. Just as Paul said, it's good not to be married. I think we have some people who wouldn't have accomplished as much for the Lord had they been married. It's a good thing to be undistracted for the Lord's business. And it's a good thing to be married and produce godly offspring. So, he must become marriable. But then it says again that Isaac sent Jacob away. Let's not get the sense of this. He's being sent out of his father's house. Isaac probably had a couple of different feelings about this. One was, yeah, go get a wife. But another was, you're a troublemaker. And I'll be glad when you're gone. <laughs> you know, 18 came and gone a couple times already. 
out of here. Go make a mess somewhere else. He was probably glad to be done with his son. And so God is working through, through Jacob's failure to make him fit for the call in his life reflected in the blessing he has received. I am reminded of Moses. Think of Moses for a minute. From his birth, he was the one who was going to set his, God's people free from Egypt. Moses is 40 years old. He should be primed and ready to do what he's supposed to do. He's got the wisdom of Egypt. He's got power. He's got rank. And what does he do? He blows it all in disobedience by, hey, wait a minute, murder. What has to happen to Moses? He has to be sent into the wilderness. He flees for his life just like Jacob does. but And he finds a wife. But he spends 40 years shepherding sheep for Jethro, who is a priest of God Most High. He must be deconstructed so that he might fulfill the purpose God had raised him up for. God sent him to Jethro, who worshipped him, to make him a faithful man, to set his people free. Sometimes we need to go away to become what we're supposed to be. <sighs> Let's see. Where am I? This, is, this reminds me, well, yesterday in, the, in our men's Bible study, I, I wish I had read, reread this before the sermon notes came on, but Wayne Mack says this, the tragic consequences of our own sin will somehow bring about the sovereign will of God in our lives. So he's not saying that God works despite our sin, but he works through our sin to accomplish his sovereign purpose. And so while the consequences may be very painful and sometimes tragic, as even is seen in this story, that does not mean that God is not at work. He actually is to accomplish His sovereign purpose despite our ability to notice it. Jacob didn't see this, but that's what was happening anyway. But think a moment for Jesus about Jesus. He was sent from home too, but it wasn't because of His disobedience. It was because of His people's disobedience. And he left home to bring them back home. So just as Jesus is, is a, a contrast to Esau, he's actually in contrast to Jacob as well. We see something of the gospel in the, as the antithesis of, of Jacob's life. As one who left to get the disobedient ones back. In fact, in Tim Keller in his book on the prodigal sons, talks about that and, and mentions that it was the responsibility of the older brother to seek out his wandering younger brother. And he didn't do it because he was self-righteous. Jesus, the elder brother, left the comfort of home 
to regain his little brothers and sisters. To win them back. What else is going on in this text? There's a warning here to Israel. Remember the, the, prom, the, the, the command from last week, honor your father and mother. Paul says this is the first commandment with a promise. What's that promise? So that you may live long in the land. What happens if their lives are marked by pervasive and persistent disobedience? Exile. They're not going to live in the land anymore. They're going to be removed from the land, just like Jacob had to be removed from the land of his sojourning, the land of promise, because of his disobedience. Now, we don't do that in the church. Okay, There's not a land here. We can't say, you know, um, sorry, you're going to Siberia now. <laughs> All right, But we exercise church discipline. That when someone's life is marked by persistent disobedience without any repentance, we exercise church discipline precisely because we recognize that they need the grace of God. So God does not abandon His people, but He works even through their sin to their benefit. Which brings us to the last part of this, which is the blessing that comes out. And that is that God reveals himself in order to break the patterns of sin. Now we see that Isaac publicly blesses Jacob. Before he sends him on his way, he's going to publicly bless him. This is not hidden in the tent with no one to see. This time, it's for the whole household to know. He's going to bless them. And he does so invoking the promises of Abraham. But he also starts off with El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one who thunders. Precisely because Jacob needs to know who God is. And that that God has the power to keep those promises to him. Okay? Self-knowledge is necessary. Okay? Jacob's going to get a whole lot of self-knowledge soon. He's going to realize what a deceitful, dirty guy he is. It's, it's necessary, but it is un- insufficient for repentance. You need more than self-knowledge to repent. You must come to know God. That's what I see when I look at my own conversion experience. I began to know who God was, and I began to know who I was, and that I needed help. That's what Jacob needs to know so that he will look for help. The character of God is the foundation for us trusting the promises of God. You will not trust the promises of God unless you know His character as one who is trustworthy, one who is able to keep His promises. Have you ever had a good friend who was a liar? And you've heard the promise. Maybe it was someone in your family. If you've ever known an addict, you know this. You can't trust a word they say. Oh, yeah, I'll be there at 7 o'clock. They're probably not going to be there at 7 o'clock. They're not trustworthy. 
They don't keep their word. You cannot have a relationship, a good, healthy relationship with someone who is untrustworthy. God is trustworthy. He's able and willing to keep his word. Abraham knew him as the one who was able to make him walk uprightly. Notice the context in Genesis 17. When Abraham, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. This is who I am. Therefore, you walk before me and be blameless. His almighty power was put within the context of Abraham's personal righteousness that Abraham was supposed to look to the Almighty One to help him to walk blamelessly. It was not a self-improvement project. Same God, same name of God, different purpose this time. It is only the Almighty God that can bless him. It is only the Almighty God who can multiply Jacob, not just into a big family, but into a company. The Greek translation of the Old Testament text uses the word ekklesia, church, assembly, congregation. It is only God who can build a man into the church. We see this reflected in Jesus' statement that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He builds the church. He's going to build Jacob into the church. Almighty God is the one who's going to give them the land. And sort of here, this word can mean inheritance or it can point to conquest. It depends upon the contest text. Is it a legal statement or is it a military sort of usage in this particular point? Is, is, is this just, and here it's both, essentially. He's inheriting the promise to Abraham, but it's going to be fulfilled through military conquest. The land in which he's being removed from. Note the irony there. You're leaving the land that you once sojourned, but one day I will give it to your people. And they're going to take it through conquest. Only Almighty God can accomplish that. Okay. But it's not just about power. I said it's about willingness. And for willingness, we have to look to Christ crucified. We have to look and see that he displays his willingness to give all who believe Abraham's promise. We saw that in Sunday school this morning and looking at Galatians a little bit, that he came at the proper time, in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law in order that he might give them the promise of a, of Abraham to be adopted as sons. It's all connected. He's has a willingness to give us, not just a, not just Jacob. He gives us the promise of Abraham. He has his willingness, and he has power to do it. And so we have to know that Jesus is mighty to save. It's not just a popular song. It's a, rea- it's a biblical reality. 
He is mighty to save. To save you. And we have to know that He is also mighty to pull up the roots of sin that exist in our hearts. That we might commit ourselves to Him. I think I have in mind two different quotes from Calvin that I found in two different places. One of them was from his commentary in Genesis, but they're connected. First, let us know that we do nothing effectually until we tear up our sin by the roots and thoroughly devoted our, devote ourselves to God. So he, Calvin is saying that you will make not much, you'll not make any progress in the Christian life until you pull up the sin by the roots and consecrate or commit yourselves to the Lord. You're just playing games until that point in time. But then catch what he says from Genesis. For errors can never be uprooted from human hearts until a true knowledge of God is planted therein. You'll never be able to root out the sin in your life and commit yourself to Him unless you have a true knowledge of Him that you know Him in part as God Almighty, able to keep those promises, able to change you, able to preserve you, able to fulfill the promise of Abraham for generation after generation. And so are, are, are we growing in our knowledge of God? Because that is the most necessary aspect of this. Not just head knowledge, which is important, very important, but also heart knowledge. Jonathan Edwards uh, talks about this in, a, in one place. It is one thing to know that sugar is sweet intellectually because you have read that sugar is sweet, and it is something else to taste the sweetness of the sugar. What I'm talking about is tasting the sweetness of the sugar, the sweetness of God. Do you know Him that way too? That's part of what I had to learn in my 20 years in, in uh, my exile. I, I, I sometimes call it my exile in Florida. You know, because I couldn't get out, man. <laughs> but I had to learn how faithful he was, how he was different from any person I'd ever known, and that even though it might appear at times that he was letting me down, he was really not, because he had a greater agenda that was not about my circumstances, but was about my character. have to know him experientially not just intellectually okay but you will never know him experientially without knowing him intellectually okay they go hand, they're supposed to go hand in hand so we have to grow in our knowledge so that we can begin to commit ourselves to him and pull up the sin and and really, we recognize that all along it's him that's doing the hard work, the heavy lifting, and that. So, sin and its consequences abound. And sometimes they harden people in their sin like Esau. 
But God uses them, uses their sin and misery to transform his people. Grace really is greater than all our sin. It's also greater than its consequences. He reveals himself to us in the scriptures so that we can trust him even in this. And so let's further entrust ourselves into his gracious care so that he might continue to transform us according to his purpose. Because guess what? We haven't arrived. Individually, we haven't arrived. Aren't we still plagued by sin? Right? And corporately, we haven't arrived. This is a good church. But God wants to make it a better church. We haven't arrived. Let's continue to entrust ourselves. But now let's pray. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture. It reminds me so much that all is not lost when I see my own sin, when I see my own tendency to wander. It reminds me that you don't give up. That you persevere with people like us. It should encourage us as we see your faithfulness on display despite the unfaithfulness of your people. So help us to identify with them in their sin and their misery. But grant us a greater knowledge of you so that we will trust you and that we will thoroughly devote ourselves to you, that we will dig up the roots of our sin. I ask that you would put your gospel deeper into our hearts even beneath the roots of our sin, that it might push out our sin, that it might blossom in the fruit of the Spirit. And I ask this to the praise of your glorious grace given to us in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son who became flesh and died on the cross for our sin and was raised for our justification. Amen.